here in Luke chapters 14 to 17. It's called the dinner party discourse because it all happens over a span of a, of a dinner party. And this is the final, the final scene, if you like. So help me if you have that open. And also if you have this sort of uh, luminous yellow handout, that give you an idea of where we're going over the next few moments. But as we start, shall I lead us in prayer together? Father, we've just sung that we will trust in you alone. But Lord, our hearts are so fickle. Um, easy to sing that, hard to live it. So we pray, Lord, that these moments now, that you give us reason to trust you. Show us your goodness. Show us your loving kindness. Show us that you're a shepherd we can trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was um, at college, for some reason... There are loads of people in my year called Ben. It kind of happens like that, doesn't it? There's often some certain year groups. There's sort of lots of people with a single name. Lots of Bens, which meant, kind of meant to, distinct, to sort of distinguish them, differentiate them. We had to give them nicknames. We couldn't use their surnames, of course. And um, so one, there was one particular Ben we all called Canadian Ben. Canadian Ben had a very strong Canadian accent. He grew up in, in Ottawa, I think. Uh, he is passionate about uh, Canadian culture, like... Um, Canadian culture. Uh, bands like Arcade Fire. There you go. Um, and uh, he, he dressed like a Canadian. He, he often wore these very trendy sort of red lumberjack shirts like uh, all Canadians do. So we all called him Canadian Ben. He hated the nickname. Largely because he's Australian. See, he, he, had, uh, he has an Australian passport. He grew up, uh, he was born in, in Australia. He passionately supports the Wallabies. It's just that everything about him shouts Canada. And so for a whole period of, of the time, he was known as Canadian Ben, much against his will. Well, in our passage today, he, Jesus, he wants his followers to make it really, really obvious that we belong to his kingdom. Not with our accents or, or with the way we dress, but rather with the way we live. It should be obvious that we belong to his kingdom. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're at the end of a, of a, a dinner party discourse. It began all the way back in chapter 15. And uh, since uh, then, Jesus has been captivating this group within this house with his teaching. And you might know that there are two very distinct groups at this party. You've got uh, the tax collectors and the sinners over in this corner over here. People, we might look at them, they're the real dregs of society. Everyone will look down their noses at them. You look at them, you realise they are lost in sin. But over in the opposite corner, you've got the Pharisees, they're the religious leaders. People would look at them and see that they're the pillars of society. But Jesus, as we've seen, says, well, they too are lost. Lost in, in self-righteousness. And over the course of this dinner party, Jesus has been sort of alternating, addressing both of these two different groups. He's been explaining the good news that those who are lost in sin can be found by his grace. Good news. But he's also been warning those who are lost in self-righteousness that they must have a saviour. They need him as a saviour. So he's been addressing these, these two groups. But we see here in Chapter 17, verse 1. There is a third group here, and it's the disciples. And I wonder if our passage here today, Jesus is if he's turning to them and asking them, which group are you in? Are you sinners found by God's grace? Or 
are you still lost in self-righteousness? Are you in the kingdom? Or are you out of the kingdom? And really that's the question facing us here tonight. Where are we? Are we in? Or are we out? You'll see on your handouts, Jesus gives us four pieces of evidence. Four things which will mark out genuine kingdom believers. And the first one is this, that we will stumble nobody. Stumble nobody. Look down with me in your Bibles, if you'd be so kind. Verse 1. And note here, the word translated sin, it kind of means to stumble or or to trip up. So so read with me, verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. These stumbling little ones, tripping up uh, young believers, was exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus is warning his disciples, don't do the same thing. I'm quite a fan of these TV shows which, which follow a, a unit of uh, people wanting to be in the Royal Marines. I love these shows because you get to see these fit, strong men doing things you could possibly never hope to do. And uh, one of the tests was uh, these guys, they had to complete an obstacle course. In, uh, in full sort of regalia. So they had all their combat gear on their boots. They had these enormous Bergens with all their kit in. And these heavy assault rifles. And they've got to literally sprint around this course. And I mean sprint. The quickest time you could possibly do it in is about 30 minutes. It, it, it is sprinting for that long. And you're not only sprinting. You're, you're climbing up uh, eight foot walls with all your stuff. You are uh, crawling under barbed wire with explosions going off all around you. You are having to um, swim underwater through dark, muddy tunnels and coming up out the other side, gasping for air. I love watching this because the course is so difficult that only the fittest, only the fastest, only the strongest can possibly hope to get through. And that's the basis upon which the Royal Marines select their troops. Well, the Pharisees, they... They thought that God selected his people on the basis of their moral performance. So they went around teaching that you got to do lots of rules and religions. So if you do this and do that, and if you don't do this, and if you don't do that, then maybe God would accept you. If you like, they they put up this big moral obstacle course, which only the most upright, only the most law-abiding, Only the most religious could possibly hope to get through. Which meant that the sinners, the the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they didn't stand a chance. These ordinary people are stumbled and tripped up by them. Well, isn't it wonderful that what Jesus teaches is just so different Jesus said that the only way into his kingdom is not through rules and regulations, but through trust in him. That that moral obstacle course, if you can picture it, it does need to be completed. But it's as if Jesus has ran it in our place, wearing our rucksack, whilst we're left wheezing at the side, spiritually unfit. Jesus has earned our place in the kingdom, which means anyone can enter. Even the most lost Sinner can be found by God's grace. 
Now, with that in mind, just just look down again at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. He's saying there's always going to be stuff, things which prevent people from coming back to God. That's always going to be the case. Jesus is saying here, it better not be us. It better not be us. Woe to us if we stumble a seeker by creating lots of extra requirements for kingdom entry. If we're doing that, we're we're like the Pharisees. We're lost in in self-righteousness. And we're in great, great danger. Look at the warning there in verse 2. It's a strong words. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. That's a loving warning, isn't it? St. John's, we need to watch ourselves and work out how we might possibly be guilty of doing this. I guess we, we might stumble people if, if they come on, on a Sunday. If we expect that they have a certain level of morality before they're really allowed to join us. So they can't use uh, bad language, they can't swear. Or they, they can't have messy lives or, or suffer addictions or anything like that. Or they can't have difficult relationships and they can't have uh, theological baggage from other backgrounds. Oh, no, 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 no. The danger is that we set up our own little moral obstacle course right by our entrance over there where only good people like us can possibly get in. I know someone who um, visited another church, not, not this one, and um, she came along, she, she felt a need for, uh, to hear some message of hope. And she came along to, to this church and the people she talked to before and after the service uh, they looked down on her, and she was a, uh, a single uh, mum, uh, unemployed, and she felt so looked down on by those people she'd met. She now refuses point blank to go to any church, and she was stumbled, tripped up. I think it's, it's possible for us to do this, isn't it? We can even do it in, in kind of subtle ways by, by simply failing to welcome people. So imagine someone came here on a Sunday night, they slipped in a bit late, they sat in the back row, and after service, while we're sort of chatting with our own friends, they might sit there thinking, well, this church isn't for me, because no one's really talking to me. Jesus, he shows us a better way, doesn't he? He sees us, people with messy, broken lives, and he welcomes us. He sees lost sinners and he embraces us. If he did that for us, then it's right that we do that for others. And we don't set up moral obstacle courses on the way in. Friends, we must not create a veneer, a pretense that we're all sorted and we're all fine. It's a lie. We need grace. Jesus welcomed us. We must welcome everyone. So we must stumble nobody. That's the first sign of evidence, if you like, of being in Jesus' kingdom. The second one on your handout is that we forgive anything. Look down with me, the second half of verse 3. If your brother sins, and and here the word is sin, not, not stumble. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. So once again, Jesus is turning to his disciples and he's saying, please don't be like the Pharisees. So according to their tradition, this is what they did when something, someone does something wrong to you. They were told, when someone wrongs you, you were to go up to them and you were to rebuke them, right? And um, you were to rebuke them because they need to be aware of their sin. And if they keep sinning against you, you've got to keep on rebuking them. And if they keep on sinning, you keep on rebuking. Apparently, a Pharisee in Jesus' day has documented that someone asked him, how many times should I rebuke my brother who keeps sinning against me? And the Pharisee said, a hundred times. You should keep rebuking him a hundred times. Well, the problem with that is pretty obvious, isn't it? It's drenched in hypocrisy. Because, um, of course, all of us are sinners. None of us are sorted. We all wrong one another in so many different ways. Unsurprisingly, Jesus teaches the exact opposite here in verse 3. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So if someone in the church sins against you, and this will happen, it has happened, perhaps, perhaps they say something to you which is incredibly hurtful, perhaps they take a joke too far. Maybe they um, break a commitment and slightly throw you under the bus and then don't say thank you. Maybe they take you for granted or constantly criticising you. People sin against us in many ways, don't they? If that happens, Jesus says here in verse 3, you do have a responsibility to rebuke them. You're not allowed just to sit on it and sulk. Jesus says here you're to rebuke them because unless they know they've done something wrong, then how can they repent? Do you see the link there? Personally, I'm immensely grateful when people have gently pulled me aside and said, Andy, you're out of line there. You went too far in what you said there. That joke wasn't funny. That hurt me. I, at home, I'm always needing Hannah to tell me when I'm being an idiot. Because half the time I'm completely ignorant of what I, what, what I might have done wrong. We need that, don't we? It's a loving thing to do. And it's no, it should be no different really for a church family. We do have a responsibility, Jesus says, to rebuke our brother who sins against us. But notice here we also have a responsibility to forgive and then to keep forgiving. So look at verse 4. It's extraordinary. If he sins against you seven times in a day, imagine that. Same guy, seven times in a day. Seven times comes back to you and says, oh, I, forg- I repent, I forgive, please forgive me. You've got to forgive him. He's saying there should be no limit to our forgiveness. Now, I believe this is so easy for me to say, so easy for me to preach. But as you know, this is really, really hard to live out, isn't it? It's so hard. Um, one of the, the churches I've worked at before, there, there was another staff member who... Who, who, who wronged me, I think. I don't think I'm out of line saying this. He significantly sinned against me, not just once, but repeatedly over a series of months. And as you can imagine, that, that made me angry, and, and that made me very bitter. I, I um, used to turn over in my mind all the different ways this, this person had done something wrong to me. I, I sort of were over it in my, in my bed at night. I wanted to let other people know uh, exactly what this person had done. I wanted to make allies for myself in my righteous war against my, my adversary. We kind of do that, don't we? And perhaps you, you can think of a similar situation in your life where if someone's really hurt you at, at church, and maybe like me, you've harboured those sort of emotions. You, you, you're bitter. You, you want to sort of gossip about them. And 
They say, they say bitterness is, is a very succulent meat to chew on until you realize that you're eating yourself. And, and no longer how long you, you nurse a grudge. It never, ever, ever gets better, does it? So one friend, he encouraged me in this church. He encouraged me, Andy, look at the cross. <laughs> Go back to the cross. Because no matter how much I've been hurt, well, surely I've hurt God more. No matter uh, how much I felt like a victim, well, surely I've offended against God so much more. However costly it was for me to forgive that person, well, it definitely cost God more to forgive me. I think, I think looking at the cross, it, it gains us, gives us wonderful perspective. See, if I'm, if I'm withholding forgiveness from, from someone else, it, it shows I haven't really understood the forgiveness I've been given. It shows that I'm in that category of lost in self-righteousness outside the kingdom with my pride. So what, is, what is forgiveness? What does it practically look like? I wonder if it means making four promises. If I, if I say, let's say Katie wronged me here. She hasn't. Let's say she has. Maybe I've wronged her. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but let's say Katie's wronged me and I, I say I forgive you. What, what am I promising? I wonder if I'm doing four things. Uh, firstly, I'm, I'm not going to mentally dwell on that past incident. I'm promising not to churn over and over and over and over in my mind. Secondly, I'm promising I'm not going to bring up this incident again and again and use it against her. That wouldn't be fair. Thirdly, I'm not going to talk about what Katie had done to me with others. That wouldn't be fair either, would it? To besmirch her, but to besmirch her character in her small group or my prayer trail or something like that. And fourthly, I'm not going to let that incident stand between our continued friendship or, or relationship. I wonder if it means making those, those four promises. I don't know. It might be that there's someone here tonight you need to pull aside and, and, and ask their forgiveness. Or maybe there's someone you need to pull aside and, and say, you've hurt me. Um, and, and maybe they, they, need to forgive, uh, they need to seek your forgiveness. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is a word for us tonight. But this is hard, isn't it? <laughs> This is really hard teaching. I mean, stumble nobody, welcome everyone, forgive anything. I mean, if you're, th- if you're thinking, oh, this is really hard, well, you're in very, very good company. Just look at what the apostles say in verse 5. <laughs> the apostles said to the Lord, oh, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> I love it. They're, they're asking for help because they know that on their own, they're completely unable to do these things. They're, and really, this is the third piece of evidence that shows we're in Jesus' kingdom. We, we realize we're completely unable. We can imagine at this point that the dinner party is over. They're walking away from the house. And, and the disciples, they're churning over all Jesus had just told them. You know, welcome everyone, even tax collectors and prostitutes. And they're like, what? And, and he's saying, and he's saying uh, like, stumble, stumble no one. I'm like, really? And, and he's saying, forgive everyone, like, well, even those guys. They're worrying this over on their way back home, and they're wondering, how on earth is this possible? Honestly, how is this possible? So they turn to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, give us faith. Help us, please. Because they know that on their, on their own, they can't possibly complete that moral obstacle course. They, but they know Jesus can. They know he can do it. So they turn to him, and they say, Lord, help us to forgive those wrongs committed against us. Help us to 
get over our self-righteous pride and bitterness. Again, you, you, I don't know, you might be listening to this thinking, you, you don't know. You don't know what that person I'm thinking of did to me. You don't know the pain they've caused me, the damage they've done in my life. You don't know. So how can you possibly ask me to forgive them? How can Jesus expect it of us? Surely it's impossible. Well, with Jesus, amazing things can happen. And look, look at the verse, next verse, verse 6. He says, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry bush, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, this verse is pretty random, isn't it? I don't know what you thought when you read that. It seems to be saying that if we trust in Jesus, suddenly we'll get this superpower to be able to control the plant world. Um, I'm not sure that's quite what he's getting at here. Well, perhaps we can imagine they're, they're walking home after this dinner party, and they're walking past, I don't know, and Jesus sees a mulberry bush. And, and he refers to this mulberry bush by way of illustration. Maybe he says, look at this tree. It'd be pretty incredible if I said, get up and, and plop in that, that ocean over there, wouldn't it? It'd be, it'd be impossible. And yet Jesus says it's possible with just, just the tiny, tiny mustard seed amount of faith. Now, given what we've just heard, that kind of makes sense now, doesn't it? We think forgiving that person, that person you've got in your head right now, you think that's impossible. I mean, other people might be able to do it, but you can't do it. Jesus says, all things are possible if you have faith in me. So that person you need to forgive, it is possible if you're trusting in Jesus. That, that person you need to have the boldness to approach after the service and ask forgiveness of, it's possible if you have faith in Jesus. And that person you need to sort of bury the hatchet with and invite them around for food, it is possible with faith in Jesus. And, and these are things that, that every Christian should be doing. This is an extraordinary, but we need to know that on our own, we are unable to do this thing. You're not going to be able to muster it up by willpower. Only Christ can enable us to do this. On our own, we are unable. Well, our, our final piece of evidence that shows we belong in Jesus' kingdom is, fourthly, that we realize we're unworthy. Look down with me, this parable in verse 7 there. Suppose one of you had a servant or slave plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. I guess the problem with the Pharisees is that they thought God owed them something. They thought that if they were good and if they were religious, then somehow they'd earned their way into God's kingdom. It's owed to them. But notice the parable here isn't about an employee who, who works hard during his nine-to-five shift and then comes home and gets a nice paycheck, what is owed to him. No, that's not the story, is it? The story here is about a master 
and his slave. See, for all their hard labor, slaves are owed nothing. They earn nothing. So imagine a first century slave comes in from the fields after a hard day's labor. We can picture him. He's covered in mud from, from sort of pulling up crops or harvesting or whatever he's doing. He bursts into the kitchen. He sits down on the, uh, on, on the, on, on, on the kitchen t- chair. He puts his muddy boots up onto the table, clicks his fingers and says, Master, where's my dinner? Well, that's, that's not going to happen, is it? It's not the way that relationship works. A slave is to be concerned supremely with his master and only then himself. A slave, slave, he doesn't earn anything. A slave isn't owed anything. He simply does his duty. So look again at Jesus' punchline there in verse 10. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. I think the worst possible outcome for a talk, talk like this is if you go away thinking, right, if I stumble nobody and if I, if I welcome everyone and if I forgive anything, then, then I've earned my way into the kingdom. Uh, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. At all. We are lost sinners. Found by God's grace and his love. If you like Jesus, he ran that moral obstacle course while we're left wheezing and puffing at the edge. We are in the kingdom, yes, but not because we deserve it. Not because we've earned it or because we're owed it. We are simply unworthy servants of our God and King. Now that's quite humbling, isn't it? Maybe you're here tonight and you're looking in on on Christian things and Learning that Jesus considers his followers unworthy servants, it doesn't really sort of endear you to Christianity. I'm not sure I want to go through life being called an unworthy servant. It doesn't, really? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Why would I want to be a slave? If if you're thinking that, I'd urge you, look again at the master. (laughs) Look again at the master. Jesus is not the sort of master who would abuse his servants for personal gain. Jesus is not a master who would live in luxury whilst his servants starved. No, not at all. Far from it. Our king, our master, is the Lord of creation. Yet what did he do? He came down and he lived among us in our mess, in our muck, with our sin. And he served us. He took the form of a slave and he went to the cross with all that he had, and there it's as if he became lost and lonely in order that we might be welcomed in and be found. What sort of master do you have? You have a servant king. You have a saviour king. And friends, we are unworthy of him. You are unworthy Of such a great king as this. That he should die in our place. That his body and blood should be poured out for us. We are totally unworthy of that privilege. Seeing that. Seeing our master in that light. Do you not desire to serve him? Do you not desire to serve his people? By serving, by welcoming anyone. 
Serve him by forgiving anyone. We have a great king. Let's pray. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Father, that is our prayer. We are so pathetic. We cannot do this, Lord. We can't welcome everyone. We're so proud. We're so self-righteous. We, we can't forgive people in our own strength. We're so puffed up. Lord, increase our faith. Increase our vision of our saviour, of our master. Show us again what he did. Show us our forgiveness. Show us the love you've given to us and poured upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.